Hi, I'm your host, Jenna. And I'm your host, Sophie. And this is the Horribly Happy Podcast. So this is our first episode, and in this podcast, we're going to be telling stories. Um, Our first story will be a horrible story, whether it's mystery, murder, true crime, a terrible history event. And then the host on the second uh, part of the podcast will go into a more happy story. So uplifting, inspiring, you know, something to end on a brighter note. Yeah, and we'll switch off who tells which story each week, but it will always start with a horrible and always end with a happy Exactly. And then we might sprinkle a little bit of our lives into it as well. But this is mainly a storytelling podcast. So Sophie and I just love talking and we we wanted to record it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? You know, bring up, bring everyone along with us. Exactly. So we're going to, you know, research these topics, but also we are not professional researchers. We're podcasters for that matter. So barely podcasters, <laughs> barely podcasters. <laughs> exactly. So if you, you know, notice something wrong or we say something incorrectly, please feel free to share that with us. But also know that we're doing this with the best intentions and we do apologize if we get facts wrong. Yeah. Um, we are trying our best. 100%. And we're, we're just having fun out yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, just doing a little research and just retelling the story. So Um, with the best intentions. Exactly. And you know, the reason we're doing like horribly and happy is because Sophie and I have always had a fascination for kind of like dark things, but not in the fact that we're like obsessed with true crime or anything like that. Like just horrible things really pique our interest because it's like, huh, that could happen to me. Or like, I can't believe that happened in history. And I think a lot of people have this fascination, but it's like in the past few years has become normalized or brought to light and people are kind of okay admitting it. Exactly. And it's just like almost a way to like look into things, you know, so history doesn't repeat itself. Like, yeah, there's a saying about that. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like, (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about, but I trust you. Like, you know, if you look into an event or, like, look up something horrible and then you see the wrongs that they made. And, you know, whether it's, like, a terrible event in history, you're like, I'm not a world leader. I can't stop that. But, like, maybe you could see that coming to life, like, in present day and, like, how to avoid that. I don't know. Yeah. Spark some conversation. Yeah, exactly. So that's always been super fascinating to us. But also, like... We both deal with some mental health issues where, you know, we can get anxious or sad. And so we don't only want to talk about bad things and horrible things. So we also want to talk about some inspiring and uplifting things as well. Yeah. Still very interesting, but... Life is not always rainbows and butterflies. And I think, especially when you're in like a rut... Sometimes just like hearing those only hearing down downer things is not great. Um, so that's why we definitely want to end on a more uplifting note and kind of give you the the feel goods. Exactly. So yeah, we're really excited to get started on this. Um, and thank you for listening. If yeah. you're here, if anyone's out there. <laughs> yeah. Hi, mom. <laughs> yeah. Just our family and close friends for the, for this week, but hopefully we gain gain a few more, you guys. Exactly. Awesome. So to start off, before we get into the horrible story, which Sophie will be highlighting today, we just wanted to catch up, chit-chat, see what's going on. I mean, come on. The only thing we have to catch up on right now is Taylor Swift's new album. (laughs) I knew you were going to say that, and me too. I just, I can't. So, uh, some background. Sophie and I have known each other since seventh grade. Yeah. Um, Been best friends since seventh grade as well, like inseparable. Um, so we've, you know, gone through life with Taylor Swift as our musical icon, and now she's just repeating, like, coming up with the re-releases, and it's just been an emotional roller coaster, but an amazing one at that. Yeah, we're Swifties, to say the least, um, so we just always support our girl, no matter what. Um, we did not jump ship when no. things were bad. Some people did, and, like, <laughs> that's okay, we're always welcoming you back with open arms, but we were not those people. We are... 
um, fiercely loyal to Taylor Swift. Yes. So for anybody that is not a Swiftie or maybe has been living under a rock the past weekend, Taylor Swift just re-released her Red album, and this time it had 30 songs. So some of them were not released the first time around. And her cult favorite song, All Too Well, has been released as the 10-minute version. And I... And it was a long song prior. It was like a five-minute song prior, like the first time it was released. So it was already a long song. And then to be 10 minutes... it's, it doesn't feel like 10 minutes, though. No, it doesn't feel like 10 minutes, but when I was listening to it and, you know, the first part of the song, it's, like, lyrics that you've already heard, and yeah. then it comes in with lyrics you haven't heard yet, immediate tears, immediately <laughs> bawling. It just caught me so <laughs> off guard because um, I was kind of just, like, waiting for a new verse to happen, but she threw in lyrics in the middle of that second verse yeah. and, where she's, like, tossing tossing me the car keys, fuck the patriarchy, and I was like... <gasps> Whoa! Here we go. I know. We're in it. Yeah. Truly a masterpiece. So that's been our whole weekend. We're recording on a Sunday right now, and it has been released Friday. So all Taylor Swift all day. Sending TikToks back and forth, theories, (laughs) videos, Easter eggs, all the goods, all the goods. What what album do you think she's gonna re-record next? Nineteen eighty nine. I mean, I think so too. Everybody's saying that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I just I like to ruffle feathers, but. Um, I actually saw this TikTok today where a guy theorizes she's n- not going to re-release or re-record anymore because he thinks it's just a PR move for the people who hold the other records now to finally be like, okay, fine, we'll sell them to you. Sure, but I think no, she's having too much fun with it. Like, Yeah, she's having- and I think she's already re-recorded more... Yeah. So, I mean, she released Wildest Dreams re-recorded. Right. Well, that's because it went viral on TikTok, and she was like, give me that money. <laughs> I know, but do you think she like was like, get into the studio and let's do it now, or do you think she already had it in her back pocket mm. and was like, okay, let's just, let's toss it No, I there. think she recorded it because it was going viral oh, on TikTok. Because okay. she posted like, hey, I heard my songs going viral, have fun with the Taylor's version of it. Yeah. I just was like, maybe she already has a couple albums re-recorded. True. Could be. But... We'll so, ask her. Yeah, we'll call her up. Yeah. Um, and please don't drop off if you're not a Swifty because we won't talk about Taylor Swift no. the whole podcast, but this is a really big life event for us. Yes, yeah, it's, it's been a really fun weekend <laughs> yes. uh, listening to her music, but this will not be a Swifty podcast, so please stick around. Come back, please. <laughs> Come back, be here. <laughs> oh, so, gosh. anything else, Sophie, going on in your life? Gosh. No, it snowed yesterday for the first time. We've had an amazing yes. fall. Oh, yeah. So Sophie and I both live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. True. And that's as much as we'll disclose. <laughs> <laughs> you guys got to do the rest. Um, and I was so ready for it. I feel like every year I dread snow, you know, the first snowfall. But I was just like, where is it? I'm, I'm ready no, to be cozy. Truly, because we've had the most amazing fall. For those that don't live in Minnesota, typically we have like a two-week fall. Yeah, and for like the goes, true fall weather yeah. you see. But this year we had literally two months of fall, beautiful weather, amazing colors. It was just great. So now I'm like, yeah, let's bring on the Christmas, bring on the snow. I already have my holiday decorations Same. up. It, and I was kind of like... You know, I used to say no Christmas decor until after Thanksgiving. I've changed my view because I just don't think it's long enough to enjoy. No, it's not. But then I was like, okay, maybe I'll wait till the first snowfall. But it wasn't happening. I was like, I just got to put this stuff up. So I actually put my tree up yesterday while the first snowfall was (gasps) happening. I'm so jealous. (laughs) If I would have known it was like going to be so dreamy, the snowfall was dreamy last night. I would have waited, but I put it up like earlier this past week, like Monday or something. Yes. So. And I don't have a fireplace in my house. (laughs) So I had a fake fireplace on my TV going like a Yule log. (laughs) And it was very much cozy. Yeah. I love it. I support that 100%. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's all I got going on, too, Taylor yeah. Swift and Christmas decor. Yeah, I mean, what else, is there to, what else is there to talk about? Yeah, just been kind of a slow couple weeks, but it's now, okay. you Now we're starting this up. We're going to go full force into Horribly Happy. So yeah. with yeah. that being said, let's get into the horrible story. So Yes, let's get into it. Um, so I just want to preface by saying that I was motivated to look into my story after... The Astral World incident that happened a couple weeks ago, and I think 
a lot of so horrible. Yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, you know, it was the tour or concert slash festival type deal that Travis Scott put on. I think there was other artists there, but um, so far, I think the death toll is nine people. And heartbreaking, really sad. But I, I wasn't quite ready to dive deep into that incident, but it, it motivated me to look into other crowd crushing, um, incidences. So today yeah. I'm going to talk about the Hillsborough disaster, which was a crowd crushing incident that ended up killing 97 people. Oh my gosh. Yes. So wow. A lot of people. And, um, just to quick reference my sources today, Wikipedia, BBC.com and Britannica. Wait, Britannica. Britannica. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dyslexic. That's okay. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where I got all my information. So on April 15th of 1989, the city of Sheffield in South Yorkshire, England, hosted the Football Association Challenge Cup, also known as the FA Cup. Okay, 1989, you said? 1989. Okay. Yep, so... I had, in my head, I had 1889. I was like, oh, we're going way no, back No, 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 no. I mean, we are going back, but not that okay, far back. Got so it. this um, city hosted the semifinal game between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest. And this is a soccer game? This is a soccer or game. football? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, English soccer. Got it. Okay. <laughs> European football. <laughs> um, so it was a game between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest at the Hillsborough Stadium, and I'm not a soccer person. I don't think you really are either. I am not, but my partner Zach loves Watching. soccer, so I, I've experienced some of the craziness. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't even just very small history. The FA Cup is just essentially the national tournament for English soccer. Okay. Um, and today it's actually more commonly known as the Emirates Cup, so I think people refer to it as both. But it's just kind of I hate like referencing, but it's like. The Super Bowl NFL okay, kind of thing. Okay, okay. Yeah, but for English soccer. And I'm sorry if that's wrong. I'm not a soccer person. Like, <laughs> I do not watch it. But that was kind of the vibe I was getting when I looked into it. Um, so, field invasions and hooliganism, which is an actual term. Hooliganism? Yes, this is an actual <laughs> term used in England and Europe to describe aggressive and unruly behavior of fans. Okay. I and mean, it checks out. Yeah, makes total sense. And I'm going to start implementing that in my everyday <laughs> vocabulary. Great. Um, <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So that's been an issue. That was an issue in England and across Europe for years, years before this disaster happened. And actually in 1974, so um, before this 1989 incident, they uh, implemented additional safety standards in stadiums to um, avoid, you know, some of these issues. And one of those safety standards was installing these high steel fences that separate opposing fans and fans from the field. Um, ironically, though, this was started causing more problems. Okay, so just so I have this correct, like at the games, they put this big... Like a chain steel, link fence. Okay, yeah. to separate the two opposing fans. Yeah, the, like the they, groups. Yeah, and it was like all around the field as well. Okay, okay. Yeah, so they were kind of like everywhere. Um, so on the day of this event, this game, the semifinal game, the Hillsborough Stadium actually didn't meet all these standard safety requirements that were put into place in 1974, but they were still approved to host the game. They did, however, have the high metal fencing. So that okay. was in place. Um and ironically, this Hillsborough Stadium had a crowd-crushing incident during another semifinal soccer game they hosted back in 1981, so eight years prior oh. to this game. Yeah. Fortunately, no one died, but 38 people were injured. Scary. Yeah. So these fences were, I think they had good intentions with them, but they were still causing different, essentially just different kinds of problems. And crowd-crushing was not, was not new to this day. Right. Um. Okay, so on the actual day, Nottingham Forest supporters were allocated to the south and east ends of the stadium, and that held a, about a 30,000-person capacity, and Liverpool fans were placed in the north and west ends of the stadium, which was about a 24,000-person capacity. Wow, so they're like literally like, you support this team, you go here. Yes. Okay. Like, they, again, nothing new. They separated rivaling fans years before this happened because... It just got so rowdy. Hooliganism. Right. That is crazy, though, because, like, 
if you think I mean we've both been to a Vikings game and like there's yeah. the opposing fans that you just like sit next to you and yeah. it's fine yes <laughs> yeah totally and I've been to college games before I know that's not professional but like it can get rowdy there too but you're yeah. still standing next to fans that are from the opposing team so obviously English soccer is a huge deal right um, so I just think you know it's it's been a problem for them um <laughs> And so this event happened on the Liverpool side. So I'm going to kind of focus on the Liverpool stands okay. and that area of the field. And because they were didn't want the rival fans to cross paths or go into each other's sections, like they each had an entrance they had to enter, but only one entrance. So okay. Liverpool was entering one side, um, Nottingham Horse was entering the other side. Um, and then they also had turnstiles, you know what those are, like... <laughs> they're no. like um if you like have ever taken a subway like in a big oh, city yeah. yeah you like have to like okay yeah i just didn't know what they were called yes yeah turnstiles <laughs> um look it up if you're not familiar i can't i, was I like, don't know why styles? <laughs> yeah, yeah, everyone had to walk past was he harry born? <laughs> was he 1989 is he taylor no. swift's age no he's like our age okay so which styles an undisclosed age <laughs> <laughs> to be determined um Okay, so the match that day was set to begin at 3 p.m. And around 2.30 slash 2.40 p.m., 10,000 Liverpool fans had still not entered the stadium. Okay. So they were still, like, outside of the stadium, outside of the turnstiles, trying to get in. Um, And because they only had one entrance, it was just, like, bottlenecking. Because turnstiles also, like, take time. It's not like they were just, like, crowding through because you have to check tickets and all that stuff. So um, it was actually, like, there was some crowding issues outside of the stadium before the game even started. And shortly before kickoff, with growing concern of crowd crushing outside of the stadium, a police officer who was there um, requested the stadium to delay the game like 30 minutes so that they could get everyone inside. And this was not, like they had done that before, I guess. Um, Just delayed the game so that they could get everyone inside because otherwise people are just, you know, these fans need to get in and see kickoff. Right. You know. But his request was denied. Oh. Um, Yeah. So they said no. But anyway, still an issue. People were getting um, pushy and aggressive. So a police officer allowed a gate, gate C, to be opened, which was actually meant to be opened after the game to let fans leave. You know how, like, these stadiums have more, they, like, open more doors at the end of the game to let people out? So that was, like, a gate, a door that was going to be opened after the game, but... They opened it prior because there was so much crowding and people then were coming in through this like outdoor and bypassing the turnstiles. So it was kind of like off to the side. They didn't have to go through the turnstiles and all these people were kind of flooding through this gate all of a sudden. Okay. And then, oh, it's also important to note that there was no assigned seating here. It was just like open admission and fans were just encouraged to... Um, disperse and find their own seats. Okay, that sounds like a terrible idea. Yeah, recipe for disaster for sure. Okay, so now I kind of have to get into explaining the setup of these stands. So bear with me because, you know, I'm using my voice only. Um, (laughs) But the entrance was on the west side, the west end of the field, and you entered behind the, like, you enter and then you see behind the stands, if that makes sense. You can't see the field because the stands are in the way. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. And there's upper level stands and, like, lower level seating. So, so there's no assigned seating and, like, you just have to, like, fight for a good spot, yeah, basically? Yeah, That seems like such a bad idea. And that's the issue because, I'll get into it, people yeah. are trying to get to the best seats. Right. So, then you're, like walking in under these stands and then there's tunnels and I don't know exactly how many tunnels there were I read somewhere that there was three tunnels like under the upper level stands that you had to go through to get to the lower level stands and there was a tunnel on like each end of the upper level stand and then what they called the main tunnel which was like in the middle and like kind of shot you out right behind the goal Okay, yeah. Yeah, so there was, they called them, um, I'm calling them sections because that's kind of how we refer to like fan sections, but they right. called them pens. So this main tunnel led to pens three and four, and these were the sections that were directly behind the goal, which I'm assuming are like desirable seats. Right. Um, so you're going to see the action. Yeah, of course it's you're, desirable. and you're right there, and you're lower level. Yeah. So 
And I think just, okay, so for whatever reason that day I read like, there was just really poor signage about other tunnels. So everyone was flooding. I mean, this is, these are 10,000 fans who are trying to still get in are flooding through this main tunnel. Right. So the people who were already, who had gotten to the game earlier and were in the pens already are now being like shoved up against the gate that separates them from the field, if that makes sense. Yeah, the the new gates that they put in. Yep. Okay. So they're like shoved up against the field, like um, in against these metal the metal fences, and um, so the be- the game begins, and people are still pushing, still pushing, still pushing people up against it, and there's a another door that breaks open in the front on this fence that is between the fans and the field. And, like, people kind of, like, fall out of the door. Because of, like, the pressure of people yes. pushing up against it? Yeah. Wow. And now people... This is where it's happening. People are being crushed. So people are climbing up and over the fence. They're spewing out of this door that has just been opened. They're reaching for people in upper-level sections to, like, pull them up. Because they're, like... They're being crushed, essentially. And wow. at 3.05, only five minutes into the game, the game is stopped because of what's going on. And teams are ushered back into their locker rooms. And everyone is just, all these fans are just trying to get to safety. And unfortunately, those who were unable to get out of the crowd were packed so tightly that many of the victims died from compressive asphyxia which I was reading about, and it was standing asphyxia. Like, so they were pushed. It's not even like they I just were, got chills up and I down know. my body. It's not even like they were like, they felt, it's not like it's any better if you fall to no, the ground. No. But they were literally so close together that they suffocated because they like couldn't move their chest. I like cannot even imagine. I know. It's it's terrible. Um, And... Those who were there and able-bodied were, like, attempting CPR on these victims. And people were making, like, homemade stretchers out of, like, signs and other equipment they could find from the field. And those who were on the scene reported saying they saw people losing consciousness, like, right in front of their eyes. Um, And this is... I'm going to get into this next. Um, But the police officers on the scene said that letting the fans assist those who were wounded and dying was intentional so that the fans wouldn't turn their frustration onto the police. So they, they could be, like, distracted. Mm. Super weird. They um, said that? A police officer said that, yeah. Strange. So the stadium staff and the police force were heavily scrutinized after this event um, because they had such a slow response to the disaster. They, like, wouldn't declare it an emergency and they wouldn't say it was a major event, and everyone thinks that attributed to the slow emergency response systems. Um, And in 1991, so two years after the event, the coroner's coroner's report declared that all those who died at the scene were beyond survival at 3.15 p.m. So just like quick timeline, like the game started at 3, it was called off at 3.05. He's claiming that anyone who was, who died, died like by 3.15 p.m. There was no way to save them and that's really important because the first ambulance didn't even arrive until 3:15 p.m. therefore they couldn't um, allow an investigation into the rescue efforts because the coroner's report was like well it didn't matter anyway because they were all dead oh. you know what i mean so are they saying like the coroner's report is like um maybe saying that to stop an investigation yeah they think there was like maybe some cahoots between wow. the corner because like i even read somewhere that like the corner and some police officers like had a party after they said they couldn't Ew. investigate further into it yeah um i like it was like very briefly said so i didn't touch on it a ton but it was there's weird things going yeah. on like it was very sketchy um but like families of these loved of their loved ones who passed away and died were like really pushed for investigation and just were like really unhappy with them saying like oh it was an accidental death because they're like things you know things could have happened like this could have been avoided right like that although nobody like straight up murdered somebody that's not like oops that's an accident it's not preventable um that seems very preventable to have 100% that happen yep so, um, in nine or in two thousand nine, an independent research team finally like 
investigated the incident. What, is so, that like 20 years 20 after? years later. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And they believe that the police participated in a cover-up of the incident and that it was not caused by drunken and unruly fans like the police had originally stated. And this independent team also said that 164 reports had been altered and negative comments about the police force were removed um, when people were interviewed about, like, the event that happened that day. Wow. Which is crazy. (laughs) Yeah. They also, this independent team also stated that 41 people could have been saved with better rescue efforts because post-mortem examination showed that many victims had lung and heart function after being removed from the crush. Oh. So it's just not true that they were, like, already too far right. gone. Right, and how many people did you say died? On the scene, it was six or 94. So to have a coroner say 94 people were dead before 15 minutes is, like, what are the chances of that? Like, that seems really And it's actually completely false because people were reportedly died on in transit to the hospital and at the hospital yeah so it's just it was just so ridiculous and i think that's why people were just so outraged because they're like it's just simply not true right yeah um yeah and then in 2012 that coroner's ruling for the accidental deaths was overturned good yep so another three years later and then in 2014, police chief superintendent at the time of this event, David Duckenfield, admitted that it was not the crowd that opened Gate C, which he actually had said originally, when it was he was the one who made that decision. That was debunked, like, pretty early on. Okay. Like, that wasn't new news in 2014, but even right away, he was like, oh, the crowd He's constantly it. trying to blame the crowd. Yep, yep. And But he did also say his failure to block the main tunnel directly caused the deaths in pens three and four. So those are those sections I had mentioned earlier. So right. I guess like kind of good that he said something however many years later. <laughs> and in 2017, a jury found that 96 people were unlawfully killed and six people um, from the police force had charges brought up against them and David Duckenfield faced 95 counts of manslaughter. And ultimately, after, like, many trials and dismissals, like, I won't get into the whole thing, um, David Duckenfield was found not guilty in 2019, and those six police officers were all eventually acquitted. Acquitted, I mean. So, like, (laughs) yeah, no one was really held responsible. Right. Yeah. So, really terrible. Um, All in all... 97 people died from their injuries that were caused by this disaster with the most recent death occurring in 2001 so just earlier this year 2021 sorry 2021 yeah this guy was like i don't know the name off the top of my head but he had suffered injuries and was in like a vegetative 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 (laughs) thanks state for years and then came out of it and was not like completely came out of it but was able to um, he was able to communicate in some sort of way and, like, talk about the event, but um, he eventually just, like, succumbed to his injuries earlier this year. Oh, my gosh. So that he, is heartbreaking. He's officially the 97th victim. Um, 94 of them died on the actual day, either on the field, in transit to the hospital, or shortly after arriving to the hospital. Ages ranged from 10 to 67 years old. Three people have been known to have committed suicide following the event, and 766 people were reported to have suffered injuries. That is, like, almost, like, I can't grasp it because it's so big. It's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all just, like, reported. Like, three people have been known to commit suicide. Like, who knows, you know, anything else that has come from that or just even, like, mental anguish. It's, like... Oh my gosh, like imagine like surviving that and how traumatic that would be. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I read something about like the ten, a 10-year-old who died. Like his cousin, who was like 13 at the time, like went on to become a soccer captain for one of the English teams. So like he was just like very hurt, but like also motivated for yeah. this incident. Wow. Yeah. Um, and the all in all, the Hillsborough disaster is labeled the highest death toll in British sporting history to this day. And today, stadiums have now removed fencing, thank God, (sighs) and have also implemented an all-seated method, which just means that everyone is assigned to Right. I was going to say, like, okay, well, how have they prevented this now? Yeah. Yeah. So those are some, like, two of the biggest changes that came out from this. And I'm sure additional safety measures and probably, like, not allowing a stadium who didn't meet the safety requirements host a game anyway. Right. Yeah. Um... 
So yeah, just, it's a really crazy, sad story. And I had never heard of it surprisingly until I was researching crowd crushing instances after the astral world. Yeah, I've heard of it, but I didn't know like the details of it. And it is just so unbelievably terrible. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, so that's that's my story, which fascinating. Like I'm not a soccer fan, but it was just super interesting to learn like all the problems that had like all the issues they had had prior to this. Right, and the fact that like the people in charge of keeping everybody safe is like they their immediate response is to blame it on mm-hmm. the crowd. Like, okay, I'm sure there was what is it, hooliganism? Yeah. I'm and, sure like, there was hooliganism. And I'm sure there was there. alcohol. But that you have to expect if you're hosting an event like yes. that. You have to be able to control it, and they weren't ready to control it, and then they just turned it on the fans. Like, yep. yeah, that is not okay. I'm really glad that it was brought to light, like, what actually happened, but 20 years later seems a little late. Yeah, I mean, like, it's super... It's great that the coroner's initial report was overturned and they weren't accidental deaths, but it's just so... It has to be so unsettling for the family that really no one was held responsible right. for what happened. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've been pretty fascinated in, like, a, a terrible way about crowd-crushing incidents because I did... Like, the first time I ever heard about a crush, I think it kind of happened recently. Like, I didn't know what the term crush meant, mm-hmm. but I heard about a crush that happened... Was it Jerusalem? Oh, yeah. And there was, like, thousands of people died. Are you talking about the one with like the holy day? Yeah, the trek to Mecca. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I heard about that on the news, on like my daily news podcast. Mm -hmm. And I was just like gut punched. Like, wait, what is this? People can die like this? Yes. So then I looked into it a little bit more. I was just like, terrible. I like, it's what a, maybe the worst way to die. That's like my new fear. Like how terrible is that? And like how many concerts or events have you been to where you're like pretty packed? Yes. Well, so I'm, I'm really glad that like these stadiums have now implemented like assigned seating. That's Mm -hmm. clearly like a really big solution to this problem. But then it brings us back to the Travis Travis Scott um, festival where thing it's not assigned. No. You have to push to get to the front. Yeah, his crowd is rather unruly, anyways. Hooliganism, one yeah. might say, and yep. he tends to encourage it. Yeah. Um. So it's like okay, maybe concerts need to have you know more yeah. assigned seating, not uh, just an open pit, right. especially concerts that have thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. Yeah, and that actually just reminded me is that on this Hillsborough Stadium typically had officers like around the pens to keep keep count of how many people were in each pen and then redirect people if the pens were getting full. Mm. So they had some kind of idea of like how many people could be in each section, but they just weren't doing that that day. So even if they want to have like a free flowing crowd, maybe at least like cap the number and actually, I mean, Astral World people were breaking over barriers and stuff. Um, So obviously there's a lot more than just being like, keep track of the number of people. (laughs) But yeah, it's... It's crazy, and it's really sad, and just researching this, like, I found ones, like, Black Friday and stuff, which is just, like, also so disturbing to me. Like, you're shopping. I need this TV so bad, I'm going to run over somebody. Yeah. Like, I saw one, like, with Macy's, and I was like, is it just, like, all these, like, moms? Like, (laughs) what? Crazy. I don't mean to laugh. It's really sad. But, like, yeah, like, the fact that... Like, where does it end? The mayhem (laughs) would cause you that much, like, distress. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. So, that's all I have on that story. It was super fascinating to research, and there's a lot more information on the trials um, that I just kind of skimmed over because there was a lot of just dismissals and retracts right. and trials. Um, and ultimately it just was like, no one was held responsible. Wow. Really devastating. Um, thoughts go out to everybody, every victim, every family's victim involved in the Hillsborough yeah. tragedy and also the Astroworld tragedy yeah. and just like really a lot of sad things and, yeah. and thoughts out to every victim there. Definitely. Too young. People are much too young. Ugh. Yeah. That's really sad. It is. So to transition away yeah. from this 
horrible story. Thank you so much for sharing, Sophie. Really great research. Thank you. I'm impressed. Thank you. Who knew a math major could be that good at research? (laughs) I could be so good with my words. You know, Wikipedia, man. So well spoken. Every time we cite our sources, it's going to be like Wikipedia, Wikipedia, Wikipedia. And you know what? We've talked about this. Like, people shit on Wikipedia. No. And I'm like, no. I, in college, had to get three, like sentences written into a wikipedia page like you could choose your wikipedia page right. and it was so hard to get it approved like i had to cite sources it had to be like 100 percent factual and after doing that i was like wikipedia is legit <laughs> no it really is and when i would write papers in college i would go to the wikipedia page on my topic and then go to their sources yes. and then find all my sources yeah right yeah that's also a good idea but i'm like people are like Oh, you mean anyone could just edit that page? Yes, but it'll probably be taken down it, if it's not yeah. credible within 24 if hours. If it's a well-traveled page, because I know I'm not going to say the lake because I want it to stay there, but my family's old lake. Yeah. Uh, somebody went and edited the Wikipedia yeah. page for my family's old lake, and it ha- it says something ridiculous about my brother on there oh, that somebody fun. added, and it hasn't been taken down, but that's because we have, like... 15,000 lakes in Minnesota. Yeah. And nobody checks those pages. No and it's not, a, it's not, it's not like a, one of the main lakes. It's not a highly trafficked yeah. lake or page Funny. on Wikipedia, but it's still there. I'll show you. I'm going to look up my lake. I'm sure it's But like somebody added something stupid about my brother That's out hilarious. there. Yeah, we'll look it up later for sure. But back to Wikipedia. I donate to Wikipedia because I Love use that. it so much. And if you use Wikipedia, you should donate too because yeah. literally $2 would make a difference for Do you them. have a reoccurring donation? Because I donated once and I'm like, I wonder if I should oh, try to Oh, no, I don't. But every time I go to the Wikipedia page and it says, please, we need your help, You're I like, click yeah. donate. Yeah. I got you. I'm like, yeah, you guys are doing God's work out here. <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, like that was probably my main source. So bless up. Yeah, bless up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's end on that lighter note. Let's get into Yes. Okay. Sounds good. So my story probably won't be as long as yours, but it's very interesting. And so I don't know if this, like how happy this story is, but it's very inspiring and yeah. interesting. Um, so I don't know how I stumbled across this story, but I was interested in it because it is the author of one of my favorite books, actually. Yeah. Um, so my favorite book or one of them yeah. <laughs> is The Alchemist, which actually... Sophie, you lent that to me <laughs> I, to read. I, um, that's, you know, okay, so background, Jenna has like an English communications background and I read The Alchemist before her and then I gave it to her to read and I was kind of like, you know, it was kind of abstract, like it was okay. <laughs> Jenna is just like so good at like really deciphering the meaning behind things. So she like really appreciate it. And that's great because The Alchemist is a highly acclaimed book. Yes. I just didn't quite get it. <laughs> I love that that's how you see me because I don't see myself like that. But it's, thank you. That's no, very nice of you to say. It's true. It's true. So the, the book itself, we don't have to get into like a breakdown of it, but it's like a very short book. Mm-hmm. It's maybe less than 200 pages. It's a fast read. And it's the story of a young shepherd boy that's like basically going to try to find his true meaning in life Mm -hmm. like he's trying to find his life treasure basically um and you can read the story at face value and it's very much like okay he travels here he finds this gem yeah and that's like a great fable to read maybe but then you read it at a deeper level and it's like, wow, this is the meaning of life, man. That's definitely the level Jenna read it at. Yes. And that was kind of the first, yes. first go around. Maybe, so, I'll, maybe I'll try reading it again. You should. Yeah. You should. Maybe after, after listening to yes, this. Yes, yeah, after yeah. hearing about his life because okay. it's fascinating. So the author of The Alchemist is Paulo Coelho. Um, and I'm going to just tell you about his life story because it is actually fascinating. I knew nothing about it. I just liked one of his books. So very excited to go into this. Yeah. So a few of my sources are The Culture Trip, um, which is an article on his Colo between insanity and spirituality. Um, and then I went to biography.com. <laughs> Love it. No Wikipedia this time. Um, and then I also went to Wikipedia.com. Oh, my bad. My bad. <laughs> and then I went to cliffsnote.com. Oh, yeah. And that was a Cliff Notes on his bi- biography. I think there's a biography written about oh, him. Okay. So 
And then is I also... Sparknotes still a thing, or is that Cliff Notes these days? No, I think they're both still a thing. Got it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've been out of school for a while. Yeah, though. that was like something I did in high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lastly, the last source is his blog. Because um, he has a blog, which right. is interesting to look into. So, Paulo Coelho, um, as we were talking about, wrote the best-selling novel, The Alchemist, um, which has sold over 35 million copies and is the most translated book in the world by a living author. Oh my goodness. So... I did not know that. Yeah, it's like... I knew it was a popular book. Yeah, very popular. So he was born in Brazil in 1947, and he is still alive. Um, And he attended a Jesuit school when he was younger, and he was raised by really devout Catholics. Um, So his parents were very, very Catholic and traditional. Um, However, in his early age, he was determined to become a writer. Like, he was like, this is my life goal. I want to be a writer. And he was very outward about that. Mm -hmm. Um, His parents really discouraged him from doing that, though, because they saw no future for a writer in Brazil. They just didn't see, like, value in that profession, and they thought it might be a hard life for him. Yeah. Which I don't know what it was like in 1947. I mean, but... I feel like people, some people still have those views today on like artists and stuff. Right. And it's like, we need those people. Yeah. But people will be like, oh, are you sure? Can you make a living? So makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And if his parents are like rather traditional, yeah. want him to take the traditional route. Yeah. Um, but Kaolo, or sorry, Coelho didn't really see eye to eye with his parents. So his adolescence was... Um, pretty rebellious like he just kind of went against the norm with what they wanted um so actually because he was so rebellious his parents committed him to an insane asylum <gasps> Whoa! <laughs> at 17 years old that is dramatic yeah okay so wow i feel like that in itself can make someone go insane who's not truly right quote-unquote insane right so i have some quotes from him about that experience okay So he says, when I was young, my parents sent me to a mental institution three times. So starting at 17, he went to 17, 18, and 19, I think. Oh, my God. Um, And the reason for him going to the um, asylum um, is that his parents said he was isolated, hostile, and miserable at school. So basically, like... He wasn't crazy. He he says, I wasn't crazy. I was just a 17-year-old who wanted to become a writer. Like, yeah. that was just his passion. Right. And his parents were like, no, you're going to well, you're crazy. an institution. <laughs> like, what? Okay. Um, and he said, because no one understood this, I was locked up for months and fed with tranquilizers. Okay. The therapy consisted nice. of giving me electric shocks. Electroshocks. Oh, my God. For wanting to be a writer. He got what? electroshocks. No one was like... Hey, sorry, this actually doesn't make you insane. Well, I wonder, like, his, like, I don't know what it's like, especially in Brazil, but, like, when, back then, if your parents want you to do something, and, like, you know, your parents, like, own you, in a way. Right, yeah, I don't know, when you become, like, an adult, and you don't, if, if they, like, how long they have control over you, you know? Right, and maybe he wasn't 19, but he for sure was committed the first time 17, and then three times after. Okay. Um... So he said, I promised myself that one day I would write about this experience so young people understand that we have to fight for our own dreams from a very early stage of our lives. Wow. Like, cool. Very cool. And then also... I would have just given up with him. (laughs) Shit, okay, I won't write a book. (laughs) Fine, I'll be an accountant. Exactly. So I didn't, I actually like tried to research his time there a lot more because of course I'm fascinated with the horrible things. And he actually escaped from the mental (gasps) or from the institution three times. So every time he was committed, he escaped. And of course, he's not actually insane. (laughs) I wanted to look into like, how did he escape? Like, did he crawl out a window? All that. I couldn't find anything on that. Um, But he did escape three times. Um, he and probably then doesn't he want was... to say how, just in case <laughs> right. he's back there. So then he was um, released in 1967. Got it. And this is what he says about his time there and his parents. I have forgiven. It happens with love all the time. You have this love towards someone else, but you want this person to change, to be like you. And then the love can be very destructive. Like What a good soul. <laughs> I want to so cry. Of him. <laughs> <laughs> so actually... After he got out of the institution, he turned away from his Catholicism. That 
I mean, I'm one of them. <laughs> Checks out. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> um, and he enrolled in law school, but then dropped out. <laughs> okay. Turned away from his Catholicism to indulge in sex, drugs, and rock and roll, <laughs> baby. It. The life. <laughs> It says, of the hippie life in the 1970s. Hilarious. And that's literally sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yes. So he goes on in his 20s and 30s living up that hippie's lifestyle. Sorry, is he still in Brazil? Yes, he's still in Brazil. Um, And he starts writing songs. So he starts pursuing writing and writing songs for Raul Seixas. And I most likely pronounced that wrong. So apologies, Brazil. But it's Brazil's most famous rock star. Okay. So double apologies on pronouncing that wrong. But he's very popular. Um, So while he was doing that, he was also uh, listening to a preacher of a satan. Or sorry, it was a he was listening to the preachings of a satanic satanist guru. Oh my goodness! Listening to the preachings of a satanist guru. Okay. Consumed drugs, enjoyed various sorts of orgies. And lived a life in Brazil that was generally perceived as servasive. So, like, not good. Yeah. Um, and Brazil's military government took note of this. Then military <laughs> government. Um, they didn't like his lyrics at okay. all. And he, they didn't like his ways of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah. Um, so Brazil actually took him prisoner. Oh. Yeah. And they also tortured him with electric shocks but this time to the genitals okay (sighs) yeah no words he coelho admits that this experience was a traumatic one but regrets nothing like the forgiveness of this man i know he didn't outright forgive the brazil government but like what i would be on a revenge tour yeah or just like go into hiding right and not live my or life or leave brazil <laughs> or get out of there brazil isn't working for me yeah so it's so interesting though because not to cut you off but it's just like that time the people what people were writing in the u.s then they, they all would have been imprisoned right so i mean it, i know it's just it's right, so right right because it was yeah because like the hippies movement yeah, and stuff yeah. so yeah his lyrics were known as too left-wing and dangerous for yeah. brazil's a military government um so yeah he was he was locked up i don't know like exactly how he was i know he was like locked up but i don't know like the details of like how long he was in there when he was taken out but he after he was out he went away from the rock and roll lifestyle um and then he just started to kind of like wander with no purpose like not really quite sure what he should do because obviously he just had a very traumatic experience Um, so then he remembered his parents' decision to send him to an asylum. He remembered their objections to his childhood dream of becoming a writer. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to resign myself to their opinion. He got a job as a lawyer. And he married a woman in the church. He went back to the church. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So between 1975 and 1982, um, he was leading a normal life. So he had routine encounters, regular Mm -hmm. meals, stable paychecks, a lovely church wife. Um, And he worked as a music executive. So he was like, oh, you know, kind of still in the music industry. Yeah, but like an exec. So like living a very normal life. Um, And then it turned out that after he was doing that for some time, he could not stand to be normal. That's what he said. (laughs) And he's destined not to live that kind of life. Right. So he left his wife and he left with Christina Oyatisha, and that is probably pronounced wrong, so I apologize again. This but is a new woman. Yes, okay. new woman, and now his current spouse, and they're still married. Got it. Um, so he left the world, or he left his his church wife to travel the world with Christina. Um, and after they were kind of drifting, um, he met a stranger in Amsterdam cafe, in an Amsterdam cafe um, that told him to make the traditional Roman Catholic pr- pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Compostela in northern Spain. Mm. Um, so Coelho took that advice from that random stranger in the cafe. As we do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he went to Spain in 1986, and he was 39 years old at this point. Okay. So the road to Santiago de Compostela is a Catholic pilgrimage that is 500 miles long. Okay. So it's a, it's a long pilgrimage. Yeah. 
Um, and he did that walk and it was a spiritual awakening, he said. Um, and he is still like very spiritual to this day. So that kind of just like strengthened his faith. Um, and after he took that pilgrimage, he actually wrote a book called The Pilgrimage. And it's an autobiographical account of the trek. Um, so after he wrote that book, The Pilgrimage, he quit all of his other professions, which I'm not quite sure what he was doing then, but he was, he's just like, nope, I'm going to devote myself fully to writing. Like, I'm going to fulfill my life. Finally, we're here. At Got 39. <laughs> so he actually did write two books before The Pilgrimage. Um, but he... <laughs> They had no substantial impact, and he actually didn't like the two books that he wrote oh. prior to the pilgrimage, and he wanted he tried taking them off the shelves because oh, he was funny. embarrassed of his work. <laughs> he said it was of bad quality, and one of those books' name is Practical Manual of Vampirism, like a vampire, which sounds fascinating. Yeah, but, okay. Never heard of anything like that. <laughs> um, okay, so let me see here. Um, so then. In 19... Okay, so um, in 1987, after he wrote The Pilgrimage, it saw some success, and he devoted himself to being a full-time writer, he suddenly got a bout of procrastination and didn't want to write anymore. As we all do. He's finally living his life dream and was like... He's like, oh... Um, never mind. I need a break. (laughs) So he was procrastinating, and he told himself, because now he's like really turned into his faith that he went away from for some time. And he says, if I see a white feather today, it's a sign that God is giving me that I have to write a new book. Okay. And lo and behold, he saw a white feather in the window that day. Oh my gosh. I know. Crazy. So then in 1987, he writes his new book, The Alchemist, which is the one we were talking about at the beginning, the very popular one. Um, And it was a two week spurt of creativity. He wrote it in two weeks. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So I already kind of talked about what this book's about, but it's about a young shepherd boy who goes on a mystical trek and is, um, you know, going to try and find his heart's desire. Um, So the book actually attracted little attention at first. Um, If you buy The Alchemist, uh, Apollo has like a little excerpt in the beginning of the book that says like how the story like really starts off slow over time. Like people weren't interested in the book and for a while... Like, it was actually pulled from the first publishing shelf that, oh. that took it. Um, and then it got picked up by somebody else. And then over time, it kind of spread by word of mouth, the book did. Like, somebody would recommend it to a friend, more people would buy it, and then it started getting translated into a different language, French, and then it got translated into all these other languages, and then eventually got translated into, you know, um, the most translated book in the world. Yeah. So it was kind of like a slow burn. It wasn't automatically popular. Yeah. And now it's one of the most popular books in the world. Um, and he, you know, is known by that book, but also continues to write. So he has 25 books published in all now and is still writing. Okay. Um, so he, just an update on his life, where he is now. He is married to his wife, Christina, the one he ran away with. Um, they spent half of their year... In Brazil. So he is a, still in Brazil. <laughs> and then he also spends the other half of the year in France, which sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, he founded the Paulo Coelho Institute, which provides support to young children and the elderly. So he's giving back in some way. Um, and he continues to write, like I said. So <laughs> just like I like him a lot and I really like his style of writing. But he's like he's kind of a funny guy. Like he's very spiritual. And he, his readers, like, consider him a spiritual guru, a spiritual guru. Um, but other people think that he's kind of, like, mumbo-jumbo and, like, pseudo-philosophy. Oh, okay. Um, which I could totally see. Yeah. Like, I love it, but I know some people would be like, okay, that's, like, mumbo-jumbo, yeah. you know? Um, some people say it would fit nicely into a Baywatch episode, which is, like, a strange comment to make, but... I don't understand that. Like, cheesy. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think I, like, fully appreciate The Alchemist, but by no means was I was like, this guy has his head in the clouds. I, yes, and I think, like, his writing's fantastic. His stories are great. I think people more consider 
the cheesiness to be like his Twitter because he oh. has a huge following on Twitter. So he's actually like taken up to Twitter and YouTube. Like oh. you can go follow his channels and they're very interesting. Hmm. I follow him on Twitter and here are some of my favorite tweets okay. of him. <laughs> so he goes, never apologize for being yourself. And that's it. That's the tweet. <laughs> okay. Live, laugh, love. Yes. Very live, laugh, love. When we make a mistake. Oh, sorry. Redo. When we repeat a mistake, it is not a mistake anymore. It's a decision. That's Which, true. Actually, that kind of, like, way back in the beginning of this episode, if you guys are still here. <laughs> Raise your hand. Um, I said, like, I like looking into history, so we, like, yeah. don't repeat the mistakes we've made. Yeah. That kind of correlates to that. It does. When we repeat a mistake, it's not a mistake anymore. It's a decision. Yeah. Because you kind of, like, know what could happen. Right. Because it's happened. And you're still deciding to do it. Exactly. And then another tweet is, if you understand life, you need a reality check. That makes me feel so good. Pop off, Carrie. Because <laughs> I do not get it. Right. <laughs> okay, and here's a good one to end on. Life is too short to be wasted in finding answers. Enjoy the questions. I also like that. Yeah, I do too. Wow, that brings me like weird... Um, I don't know what the word I'm trying to... It just, like, makes me feel, like, comfort. It's like a sweater around yeah. my heart. <laughs> yeah. Wow, cool. If I had Twitter, I'd follow him. Yes. Well, you gotta get Twitter, then. I will get Twitter, probably, soon. We're making a Twitter for this podcast, so we can follow yeah. him on there. And it's not that I've never had it. I just yeah. deleted it a while back. Yeah, so overall, like, I know this is kind of, like, a long story about him, but I just think he's fascinating, um, what a traumatic upbringing. Terrible. What a dream that he's had his whole life. And then to finally pursue it and become so successful is just, like, really inspiring. And, like, I don't have a dream profession. I don't dream of labor. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just, like, inspiring to be, like, yeah, like, I can do what I want to do. Yeah. And, like, I have faced the... He faced hardships in his life and he persevered and really holds no grudge, which I'm a grudge holder. Yeah, that's something I could do yeah, better at. Yeah, yeah. sure. So I just... I really thought his story was inspiring. I love his books. Well, actually, I've only read The Alchemist, but this made me want to read all of his books. Yeah. Especially The Pilgrimage, but he has some others that are really highly acclaimed as well. So... Yeah, that's the story on Paulo Coelho and his fascinating, inspiring life. Yeah, that was cool. I um, I never, like, really dig into authors, but, like, knowing kind of some of that background, it just, like, The Alchemist makes more sense to me. Right, yeah. Um, feels, like, much more personal to him. Yes, and actually, if you read the book... Um, like I said, he has an intro where he talks about the book and he says that he rereads the book and oh. every time he rereads it, he has a new experience with the book. Like he finds something new about himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Some people are just so in tune. Yeah. I try to be, but I fail. No, me neither. <laughs> but he's like his own therapist. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And honestly, I hope he also has a therapist because he's been through some trauma. (laughs) I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, That's really fascinating. That was a cool story. Yeah. It's like very inspiring. Whether you know what you want to do with your life or not, it doesn't matter. Like he said, it's all about the questions and enjoying the questions. and And also it's never too late. Yes. It's never too late. You know, he finally pursued writing at like what was he 39 39 yeah yeah um and I think a lot of people would think that's too late yes yeah a lot of like people might see that as like my life's over (laughs) sometimes I'm even like oh my gosh I it's too late to switch careers and it's like girl yeah we're so young we're not disclosing our age but (laughs) we're so so weird I know we're 26 let's just say you're almost 27 it's almost your golden v-day less than two less than two weeks yeah I know we we do have a big birthday celebration planned for Sophie so we'll give you the dirty deets on it but it's her golden birthday it is it's my golden gal yeah her golden birthday you know I like to be like uh, birthdays are not that big of a deal, but I'm like, I'm making this one a no, big deal. No, I love birthdays. Well, mostly, like, I just love celebrating my friends and yeah. people I love, so I'm excited to celebrate with yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> I think it'll be fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. Awesome. Well, that was a great first episode. I think so, Sophie, too. your story was horrible in 
And I hope you take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it was. And thanks for sharing yours. I never, honestly, it's like, I never would have ever looked into that guy. So no. I am so happy to learn about yeah. him. Very we, inspiring. I recommend his book and I recommend um, following your dream. <laughs> <laughs> what was his first tweet? Oh my gosh, let me look it up again. <laughs> when I said live, laugh, love. Yeah, that was very live, laugh, love. You can see the cheesiness. Okay, never apologize for being yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that's one thing to take away from this episode. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Well, okay. that's it. That's yeah. a wrap. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Have a great rest of your week and stay happy. As happy as you can be. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that was good. That went way better that than I thought. Really- <laughs>